We begin with a developing story, the bird flu outbreak. Out of control, the Ebola outbreak spreading fast. There's an outbreak of the respiratory illness MERS. This is the deadliest outbreak of Ebola on record. This is The Conversation's Speaking With podcast. I'm William Isdale. Last year, the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency in response to the outbreak of Ebola in West Africa. The situation is now stabilised, and the clinic that Australia established in Freetown, Sierra Leone, closed its doors in April this year. Over 11,000 people were killed by the outbreak, and many experts say that the international response was slow and inadequate. So while we breathe a sigh of relief that the worst is now over, it's time to turn our mind to some important questions. Like what could we have done differently? And how prepared are we if we were to face a global pandemic of MERS, SARS, or some entirely new, terrifying acronym? Today on the Speaking With podcast, a conversation with Professor Lawrence Gosson. Professor Gosson is both a professor of law and a professor of medicine at Georgetown University. I spoke to Professor Gosson about the lessons we can learn from the Ebola epidemic and about the future of global health. You talk about there being two competing narratives in global health, and you say that they're both true. Could you just briefly describe what those narratives are and what you think that, that shows us? Yes, I mean, I think one narrative is, is given by uh, the World Health Organization, the Gates Foundation and others, which talks about ever-increasing progress in global health. And we have seen it. We've seen it in AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria safe motherhood and and healthy babies, Uh, and we've also uh, seen it in uh, longevity. But there's another narrative, and that's a narrative of extreme suffering, poverty, and ill health. And in my book on global health law, I, I talk about global health narratives. I ask children in their own words to tell me what their life is like around the world. And it is one of deep pain and suffering. And what that tells me is is that you can have great progress in global health, but you have no justice, you have no fairness, no equity. And so what we need to do is do both. We need global health with justice, ever-improving health indicators, but fairly distributed around the world uh, and not just for the rich. The key international institution in terms of helping achieve global health is the World Health Organization. How effective do you think it is? The World Health Organization has been a grave disappointment. I, I am a huge supporter of the World Health Organization. I, I'm the director of their collaborating center on public health law and human rights. But, you know, Ebola was the moment that World Health Organization was created for and yet it failed utterly. An international emergency. That's how the World Health Organization has described the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. 
The WHO says there needs to be a coordinated response by the countries affected, but stresses that the virus can be contained. More than six months after the Ebola outbreak began in West Africa, the global response is in the spotlight. A memo from the World Health Organization leaked last month suggested incompetent staff and a lack of information hampered efforts to stop the disease from spreading. It was late, bureaucratic, political, and we suffered uh, something in my mind that is unconscionable, which is that we allowed three of the poorest countries in the world to just languish with a preventable disease with enormous suffering among the people. Death, fear, and hunger even and we did nothing for the first six months. It, it was truly shocked the conscience. And WHO w doesn't deserve all of the blame, but they deserve a lot of it for being so, so late, so insensitive to those needs of those poor people. One of the criticisms of the UN generally is that it doesn't have its own standing army and has to at the last minute scramble to get together a group of people to enforce international peace. Do you think that the world similarly needs an international sort of standing contingent of healthcare workers? It does, and I've proposed it. I've, it's called the Global Health Reserve Workforce. We ought to have a standing army, a network of highly trained individuals epidemiologists, doctors, nurses, and with the proper medical equipment and training to be deployed in an emergency to really bring epidemics under control. It's in everybody's interests to make sure that we don't have a major epidemics and pandemics. And yet, as been said, you know, somehow epidemics come and they're repeated and repeated and repeated and we act like we're surprised, like it rains down on us from a clear blue sky and it doesn't, it's predictable. In terms of where we spend our global health dollars, do you think that we take a rational approach? No, we don't take a rational approach at all. I mean, uh, if you, you know, if you talk about my first love, which is mental health, the global burden of mental ill health is incalculable. It's, it's enormous. It affects people, families, communities. As far as, as long as I've known the WHO, they basically have only had two people in their mental health unit. That gives you an example of the kinds of uh, mismatch between need and resources. We tend to focus on the highly glamorous things, you know, polio eradication and things. These are all worthy things, but there's so many problems in the world that we just simply ignore. Mental health, injuries, diabetes, obesity, all of these things are taking an enormous burden, particularly on lower income countries without very much investment at all. Israel's missile defense system, known as Iron Dome, is to receive emergency funding from the United States of America. 
Military drones, stealthy, high altitude, high cost, and on Tony Abbott's defence shopping list. So I will guarantee a real increase in the defence budget every year, and on top of that create a joint security fund of £1.5 billion a year by the end of the Parliament. It seems plausible that even in developed countries like Australia and the United States, that diseases such as new viruses would present more of a threat to our peace and security than some traditional military threats. And yet our governments seem much more willing to spend enormous amounts of resources tackling those challenges. Why do you think it is that governments seem unwilling to, to give this uh, the resources that it seems to warrant? It's an excellent point. I mean, I was just reflecting on that today. And, you know, we should treat global health security as war. It causes more deaths than war does. It causes more suffering than war does. And yet um, we're prepared to invest whatever it takes in armaments, in militaries, in soldiers. And we, we don't fund the soldiers of security, doctors, nurses, public health people, nutritionists, and others. That is incredibly skewed and short-sighted. You're a proponent of improving our global health infrastructure, but what would you say to a skeptic who said that this is just window dressing to the main game, which is technological improvements and economic development? Aren't those the real things that are improving health and shouldn't those be the things that we focus on? Well, I, I agree with development. I think that there is a very strong correlation between a greater development and greater health. And in particular, if you ask me to point to the single most influential factor in what it takes to make a people healthy, and that's high socioeconomic status. Uh, things like education, childcare, gender equality, income support, all of those kinds of things really go the furthest. So yes, development. I'm not sure about whiz-bang technology. I think we tend to get mesmerized by it. Sometimes what you need is, you know, basic public health services. I, I posed a, a question, you know, which would you rather have access to the most amazing medicines, doctors and hospitals, or never see a doctor again your whole life, but wake up every morning and get up, have clean water to drink, uh, safe food to eat. When you walk outside, there's no rubbish, there's no infested rats, there's no uh, malarial contaminated mosquitoes. You get in your car and it's safe to drive. The air is clean. And I've done that exercise in every part of the world from Beijing to Buenos Aires to Dakar, Bangladesh, and in Australia, Europe, the United States. Everybody intuitively understands that these low-tech public health measures is what makes us feel good about our lives. In the charter of this United Nations, our country's pledge to work for the promotion of the economic and social advancement of all peoples. And a decade ago, at the dawn of a new millennium, we set concrete goals to free our fellow men, women, and children from the injustice 
of extreme poverty. This year marks the end of the Millennium Development Goals. Do you think that those goals have been useful and what do you think of the successor goals, the Sustainable Development Goals? Well, on one level, the Millennium Development Goals have been very successful because what it shows you is, is that what you highlight and what you measure, you will improve. And we have all the health-related Millennium Development Goals have had, in, we haven't met all the goals, but we've made an enormous improvement in them. The problem is, is when you choose one goal and don't choose others, then you're in trouble. So the Millennium Development Goals chose things like safe childbirth, AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, um, but it didn't cover mental health injuries, heart disease, cancer, um, a whole range of other things where we've languished. And so it's a mixed message, you know. Um, what the goals chose were successful. What they didn't choose were neglected. And with the sustainable development goals, unfortunately, there's only one health goal. A lot of health targets, but only one health goal. And it's a very vague one, which is basically a healthy lifespan, which is very noble and very good. Um, but I really can't see fundamental improvement in, in, the, in what I consider to be the most important indicator, which is justice, um, which is global health equality. Equality not only between rich and poor and middle-income countries, but equality within countries. Here in Australia, you have the, the greatest disparities between Aboriginal and other populations in the world, more than in America, more than Canada, more than New Zealand. And in Brazil, you have the super filthy rich and the utter poor who are ill. And so we need to create a fairness both within countries and among them. Two quick final questions. Firstly, in May next year, the UN will host its 69th World Health Assembly in Geneva. What would you like to see on the agenda? And then the final question is, if there was one thing that you could do to improve global health, what would it be? What should be on their agenda is a vast increase in mandatory dues by rich countries to the World Health Organization to, make, to, to empower it and make it what the United Nations envisaged for it in 1948, giving everyone the right to health. The one thing that I would do um, to improve the health of the world, that's easy, educate women. Professor Gosson, thank you so much for speaking to The Conversation. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this Speaking With podcast. If you enjoyed it, then please subscribe. You can also leave a comment or review and tell us your ideas for future episodes. Just search for Speaking With on iTunes or on TuneIn Radio.